Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Nadia Oidat about Russian disinformation efforts in Arabic media. Then, Natasha, Will, and I continue the conversation about how the United States is perceived in the region as the international system becomes more multipolar. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Nadia Oedat is a Middle East fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and an assistant professor at Kansas State University. Nadia, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. You have been doing some work about social media in the Middle East, and in particular, how social media is tracking the war in Ukraine. What have you found? What I found is really alarming, John. First of all, all of a sudden, the world started to pay attention since the Russian aggression on Ukraine, that something has been happening for a while. It just reached a tipping point before Western governments decided, oh, we need to stop this aggression. But what I found in my research is that Russia has been waging very, very diligent, systematic, consistent disinformation campaign. And I found that this goes far back to 2010, before the Arab Spring. So this has been happening for over a decade. We actually found documentations of, for example, some voices that masquerade as authentic Egyptian voices that are anti-colonial, anti-American, anti-Western. But in fact, there's nothing authentic about them. They are basically Russian bots or Russian intelligent officers operating out of Moscow. Although certainly those sentiments are common in places like Egypt and Jordan and in Palestine. John, that is actually a great point. So, you know, John, I grew up in the Middle East. You are Jordanian. I am Jordanian, as well as American. And when I was growing up, American reputation and the reputation of the West in general was not so bad. And now delving into this research, I really wonder how much of it is actually authentic, organic, and how much of it is, in fact, directed, directed by authoritarian forces within the region and outside the region. And I really am not sure that a lot of these grievances are grassroots. In fact, what I'm seeing is that, again, there is such investment to focus solely on everything negative about the West, about America, about liberal values, about democracy. And this is really harmful in the sense that authoritarian regimes are winning. What does it mean when authoritarian regimes win? It means that less people in the world, be they in the Middle East, be they anywhere in the world, it means that these people have less human rights. It means that even a lot of the elites in these regions are starting to repeat the Russian narrative pervadum. There's a, a million stories you can tell about the West. If people are given the choice, they would want to live under liberal democratic rule. So the West is not all evil. Why isn't there enough coverage of what makes liberal democracy the best system for the largest number of people? We don't hear this narrative. We don't hear about it at all. But as you know, I remember being surprised when I looked at some polling numbers that suggested that 
people in the Middle East didn't look at the United States as a paragon of democracy. And, and I yeah. questioned that. And people said, well, people in the Arab world often talk about how politics in the United States are, are captured by the American Jewish community, and therefore it's not really a reflection of democracy. I mean, these sort of strains of thought, and maybe some of them date back to the Soviet era and that propaganda effort. But it seems to me that there's a lot of fertile ground for anti-Americanism in the region. And if anything, for the last 50 years, the constant has not been pro-Americanism, but the constant in the region has been anti-Americanism, partly because of the U.S. relationship with Israel, partly because of a sense that the United States is empowering undemocratic regimes in the region. And therefore, in countries, including Jordan, people say the United States is responsible for our repression rather than our freedom. You know, these are really legitimate points, all of them. And they are true that sometimes American policymakers do not apply the American values in foreign policy. There is lack of consistency. And sometimes we do support good initiatives. However, where I am really alarmed is the connection that benefits primarily authoritarian powers, authoritarian regimes worldwide of having no distinction, none whatsoever, between pro-West, pro-American, and pro-democratic, liberal, human rights-focused rule. That is where it gets really, really dangerous. Because again, authoritarianism is about violence. It's about depriving people of choice. It's about repressing dissent with intimidation, repression, et cetera. And if these are seen as justifiable because they are the opposite of what the West has to bring, that is where it gets really dangerous. The reason why a lot of people critique America is because it's not living by its own values, but is it constructive to really just throw the baby with the bathwater? I don't believe it is. And this crescendo, because I really see it exacerbated in the last couple of decades, especially the last decade, I think the reason, again, is because there is systematic support, no matter how good an idea is, and we're seeing this with democracy, no matter how good an idea human rights and democracy is, if we don't support it, and there's a much worse idea that is being supported, you know which one is going to basically rule the day. We have an idea you know, in Wahhabism, in global terrorism, where tens of thousands of young people from Muslim communities could get you know, in tune with the idea, we need to go start a caliphate, enslave girls again, and sell them in markets. Why? Because somebody invested in teaching them, this is real Islam, you need to do this. So there's an investment in a rotten idea, but it really led to changes on the ground. So we cannot say, well, it should be self-evident that human rights, democratic rules, liberal values are superior, so we don't need to support it. No, actually, we really, really need to support it. And even when in the West, we don't live up to these ideals, we can continue to support them and continue to strive. And I really believe we do. As somebody who lives in the West and as somebody who grew up in the region, I do believe there are enough people in Western countries that truly are dedicated to these liberal values and truly are pushing to try to basically have more policy makers sign on to these ideals. Let me ask you about the Ukraine war in particular, because certainly what we've seen on the state level in the Middle East is there's no Middle Eastern state that is supportive of the U.S. position on Ukraine. And what I hear 
increasingly from friends, I was just talking to a Jordanian friend at lunch today, is that there's outright support for what the Russians are doing, partly because they like the idea that the Russians are tormenting the West, and partly they take a sort of sympathy to the Russian view of the world. Is that what you're seeing on social media? Absolutely. And in fact, I just published an Arabic article essentially really scolding the Arab elite for exactly how you put it. They're supporting Russia just because it is basically a thorn in the side of the West. And this is very blind because Russia is invading a country, is wanting to annihilate a country off the map, is wanting to remove a national identity while they critique Israel, for example. But it's okay if somebody else does it. If we are pro-human rights, we have to be pro-human rights consistently, no matter whose people we're talking about, not just ours versus theirs. But yeah, it is really, really alarming, John. But as somebody who has been doing Middle East research on various topics for a while now, honestly, I don't fully understand, even though I briefed the White House, I briefed State Department, I briefed various U.S. government agencies, I don't understand why I wouldn't take seriously that Arab regimes, even as far back as 10, 15 years ago, while they play the card of we are the allies of the West, they have been, again, really, really putting all of their weight in the media behind basically making America look really awful and evil and bad. So, And there's a reputational cost to that. There's a huge reputational cost because people are repeating what basically the Russians and the authoritarian regimes want them to repeat. And I mean, if you are bombarded by a narrative 24-7, everywhere you go, that the Republic is planning attacks, is planning attacks, and you hear it everywhere, you're going to start to think about it and repeat it, right? So the populations in the Middle East are bombarded. Along with censorship, they're bombarded with very authoritarian, pro-Russian, anti-Western narratives 24-7. So it's inevitable, again, because there's not an alternative narrative that they're being exposed to. So let me ask you a question, because there's a lot of talk, a lot of speculation that people are impressed by the China model, because China has social order, China has economic growth, China is a great power. I think there's a certain believability to the appeal of China to Arab elites, Arab masses, Arab governments. I certainly think that there are some governments that are seduced by the idea that you can have tremendous economic transformation without social and political transformation. What does Russia really offer? I mean, Russia doesn't seem to me to be a model of modernity, progress, innovation. Russia is a sort of no vote for the Western model, but it doesn't seem to be a yes vote for anything. Is that right? Absolutely. Let's start with China. Again, the power of narrative that is so frustrating for people like me that are watching the Arabic social media space and media space and news space, we are hardly doing anything. And the reason why I know or not, because I'm not seeing it, where is it? Where is that counter narrative? We are not fighting the narrative. And if all you hear is China is running like a Swiss clock. China is great. Of course, you're going to say China has economic prosperity, which we know it's not that simple. There could be a narrative. Yeah, China is subjecting the minority Muslims to unbelievable cruelty, putting huge amounts of people in concentration camps. This narrative is not being told. 
This narrative, China is one of the most repressive countries on earth. They deal with dissent with such cruelty and brutality. Where is this narrative? That's a fact. That's a factual narrative. China is only a model that serves people that want to enslave all their population. And what is really happening is that these regimes are succeeding in convincing their population that it is in their interest, which is not, to basically be so subservient and have no political will, no ability to participate in building their homelands, no ability to express any dissent. So it's a false narrative that is being sold as a successful model. It is not successful for those who are being oppressed. It's not successful for those who are being killed. Like if you're an Arabic speaker, you don't know much about that. You almost never hear about it. And the Russia narrative, so I monitored how the Russia and Ukraine are being portrayed. Russia, it seems to me, from everything I've seen in Arabic, its primary goal is to destroy the reputation of the West. And it is, again, really succeeding because truly there is a reputational cost and we're paying it. America is the capital of PR, right? We need to do PR on our reputation as Americans. There's a lot of great stories, just as many as there are bad stories, and we truly need to invest in salvaging our reputation. I have to tell you, I was in the State Department during the the campaign right after 9-11. We were doing a program on Muslims in America. Yes. I don't know if you remember that, but that was not a, a bright shining light of the American ability to understand Muslim audiences. The way it was put together, the way it was perceived, was that people come to America and become more secular. And what the people putting together the programs thought the message was, was different from the way the message was being received, because the United States is, I think, very good at telling its own story. And people pick parts and pieces of the story. But I think we have a failure of imagination, a failure of empathy to understand how others perceive us, to understand what others want to see us as. That's really important because it's all about narrative and what is being portrayed, what is our reputation is, how do we defend ourselves on, in the world. America is not just one thing. And that diversity... We need to tell our story. One thing I've always believed in, and we were talking about some research I did at RAND, I've always believed that there's multiple approaches we need to take. And one of them is that within the Arab world, within the Muslim world, within even Russia, there are a lot of people who truly believe in human rights and liberal democratic values. And these are our allies. And we are yet to truly empower these people that know how to tell that story because they are from within these cultures, within these religions, within these localities, and they know how to communicate a story way better than somebody who's from a completely different background could. Although it also feels to me that so many of the people we engage with are people who are very used to talking with us, who oftentimes have been educated in our countries, they are so sympathetic they in many ways are closer to us and have a greater stake with us than they do with the people we might want to persuade in their own societies. The other problem we have is we're, we're, we're bound by the truth. And a lot of these social media campaigns that are so hostile to the United States aren't bound by the truth. They're bound by creativity and all the other things. And that puts you at a, a disadvantage when you're trying to win hearts and minds. And one other way we are at a disadvantage is that 
there is a sort of a naivete and an assumption that I think is we really need to change. Those who are for human rights, they believe why would we want to, you know, really put that message strongly. Whereas, again, the other camp, even though they have a rotten message, they want to deprive more people of agency. They want to deprive more people of human rights. Yet they have lobbies. They have a lot of influence. They have they bought ads. They put in people behind computer screens to basically spread certain messages. They've actually invested very heavily, even though they have a false and disempowering narrative to most people. But they put their their weight behind it. You know, I went to school at Oxford, and one of the things that really struck me when I was there, and it was really disturbing, in fact, to me. So I met some some of the children of some of the dictatorships in the Middle East. And these are people that are being educated at top UK universities in the world. And they are basically, their argument is, you know, the Middle East is not ready for democracy. You should not try to, quote unquote, impose human rights. And I just thought, I'm sorry, what? I don't remember growing up in the Middle East that somebody said, you know, that I signed my right to you, my oppressor, the the child of my oppressor, telling you, I don't want to human rights, I'm not ready. I am freaking ready. And go talk to my tribes, women who are not even educated, tell you how they want to human rights. I mean, again, they come to these elite educational spaces and they use the space to argue. They have a mission. They want to stay in power. They want to stay monopolizing power, exploiting resources, while at the same time just deflecting all their failures on the West. I mean, if you look at the Arab world, it's all dictatorships. It's a lot of failed states in one region or semi-failed states. This is the leadership of the political elite in the Middle East. They are not people whose word we can get behind. So it's really complex and we need systematic effort matching that of the other camp that is doing such a great job persuading people on a false narrative. And I really am very happy to see that Western countries are also coming together and we need to intensify that effort massively on the soft power, the digital space, and really take that war of ideas seriously. It cannot be underestimated. And the consequences are really dire, truly, in my opinion. And what's at stake is more people in the world living human rights, living freedom, living ability to participate in their country's future versus more people enslaved, silenced, oppressed. So I really hope this Russian-Ukraine war is a wake-up call, but we'll see. Nadia Oedat, thank you for joining us on Babel. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Next, Natasha, Will, and I continue the conversation about how the U.S. is perceived in the Middle East as the international system becomes more multipolar. We talk a lot in Washington about the international system becoming more multipolar as China and Russia step up their game on the world stage. And we explored that recently in our mini-series on U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. Some U.S. partners in the Middle East think that it's just fine and are hedging their bets as the U.S. signals it's kind of leaving the region. But Oedat's analysis of the rising crescendo, as she said, of authoritarian disinformation highlights the potential negatives of China and Russia becoming more invested in the Middle East. Thinking about the mini-series and what Oedat said and your own experiences, how do you think Middle Eastern states and populations are looking at this? Do you think they see it as more of a net positive to have a multipolar world where they can kind of shop around? Or do you think they would prefer kind of the system as it was before or to have a less multipolar world with a stronger partner in the U.S.? 
I like how you frame this question because you're asking how states or populations are looking at this or if they think that they're better off in a multipolar world. And I think this is the big question facing us today. I mean, this is ultimately what we're all discussing and talking about, how the new world order will look and how it will benefit or impact other populations. I think it's good for authoritarian states because they don't have to listen to the United States, or at least they increasingly don't think that they have to when it comes to rights or anything, really, for that matter because Russia and China is wooing them now too. Now, how populations will fare or how they think that they will fare in this multipolar world, that's a different question. And I think Nadia's points about these aggressive Chinese and Russian influence campaigns probably play in part into why some might be happy or apathetic about it. Some of it, I think, is more organic. The U.S. has been for at least a decade saying that it's going to pivot outside of the Middle East. And so you had leaders like King Abdullah saying, we have to face reality. The Russians are here. You're not. So we need to figure out a way to deal with them in terms of oil and gas. The U.S. is now one of the biggest producers in the world rather than an importer. And so organically, I think the Gulf states are shifting to China. That's one of their their biggest consumers. So part of it's organic in that sense. But I also think that the U.S. didn't really do itself any favors by engaging in a 20-year war on terror, mostly in the Muslim world. And in so doing, I think it's not debatable that they damaged their reputation in upholding the world order that the U.S. supposedly built. And then, as John mentioned, the U.S.'s unbalanced relationship with Israel plays a part, as did, I think, the recent pullout in Afghanistan and sort of haphazard stops and starts in Iraq and Syria. I think that these examples sort of showed that democracy and human rights wasn't necessarily the priority of the United States all along. I mean, that said, I agree with Nadia to a certain degree that the reality is that the people of the Middle East will likely not be better off. The Cold War was not a great time for the people of the global South more generally, and I can tell you that much. I completely agree with you, Natasha. I think it's so easy to look at the US and see so many examples of hypocrisy between what it said it was promoting, these ideals of democracy, of liberty and whatnot, and then what actually happened. And I think when populations look to China and Russia, there are probably fewer examples of those clear hypocrisies, in part because these are relatively speaking newer players in the region, and so there's less known about them. I mean, we are debating what are China's ambitions in the region? How is it planning to intervene? I think it's not just us who are trying to work that out. I think it's people in the region as well. And until now, it's been largely focused on economics. And so that's less controversial, I think. And so there's less of a negative aura around China. This also, I think, plays into the the piece about the sort of digital crackdown and the controlling of the narrative in some of these authoritarian states, where some countries are really limiting the information that's available about China's horrendous repression of Uyghur Muslims, for example. So I think that just gets much less airtime in the region. I think when there is a shift in kind of the global balance of power, it's always a time of uncertainty. And I think looking at the states in the region and the, the governments, I think they're trying to work out how to manage this new scenario, this new environment. And I think in some ways it offers new opportunities. I would point to President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia as an example of this. MBS held out. He said, no, I'm not going to bend to US demands. And ultimately, 
the US has essentially caved and clearly has sought to gain from this. I mean, the Saudis extended the truce in, in Yemen and are probably pumping more oil and whatnot. But ultimately, the US values, once again, were not the most important factor here because these countries do have leverage. And so, yes, they might be the junior partner in the relationship, but that doesn't mean that they're not still able to get what they want at times. And so I think there'll be a lot of feeling out of this new environment, as I'm saying, and working out where are the boundaries of this? How can they play off different great powers against each other? And then what do they have to avoid? How do they avoid antagonizing them? And certainly we've seen this in the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, I think that raises an important other question. In a recent commentary, John argued that for the last 75 years, the U.S. has really invested in building the international order but that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has kind of laid bare that that investment hasn't really panned out in much of the world, especially in the Middle East. And that brings me to my question, which is a lot of what the United States has tried to build is this kind of idea of liberal democratic international order focused on liberal democracy. Do you think that the U.S. model is becoming less attractive or do you think that it's just these regional powers are suddenly realizing that they're the junior partner, but they have leverage? Again, I think that this is a question that has been simmering for a while now, especially in the Middle East, but it really came to a head after Russia's invasion of Ukraine this February, as you noted. People were lauding President Biden for bringing together allies to issue unprecedented punishing sanctions on Russia. European countries are sending arms even. Allies in East Asia sort of joined the fold. But outside of that, the picture is a little bit murkier. Arab countries abstained or voted against the UN General Assembly resolution to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. And if you include the other abstentions and vetoes globally, we're talking about governments where the majority of the world's population reside and over 30% of global GDP. So it shows quite a different picture. And I think in terms of what you're talking about in terms of the liberal democratic world order, again, I think that the United States' history of kind of picking and choosing where the liberal democratic world order will actually happen is now coming back. And I think that there are other factors as well. Obviously, there are obviously national interests in maintaining good ties with an economic powerhouse like China who seems to be still somewhat allied with Putin on this. And obviously reasons for countries like India, which have a long history of arms trade with Russia, to maintain those ties as well. And I think Ukraine just kind of really brought that to the forefront. Yeah, I think President Biden's approach really focused on Europe, as you said, Natasha, and clearly that was successful. He managed to get a huge number of European countries on board with this approach. But I didn't see much evidence of really trying to get Middle Eastern states on board. And certainly if there were those efforts, they clearly didn't, didn't work when we look at the results. And I've spoken to friends in the region who've said to me, oh, yes, it's terrible what Russia did in Ukraine, just like what the US did in Iraq. I mean, how do you respond to that? It's maybe whataboutism, but there is this record that you can point to of the US 
ignoring the rights of Palestinians in the face of oppression from Israel, ignoring the plight of Syrians at the hands of, of Assad to a degree. You look at the disparities between how European states dealt with refugees coming from Ukraine versus refugees coming from Syria and other parts of the Middle East. And I think it's hard to look at that and say that the US acts evenly across these issues. So yeah, I think it's perhaps not surprising when you think in those terms that there wasn't more of a reaction. I would also say, this is sort of anecdotal, but I was just in Lebanon and I was really struck at how wide the perception is that the US is just out of touch with what goes on in Lebanon. And people made kind of disparaging comments about all US diplomats being holed up in their fortress in the hills to the north of Beirut. And I got this sense that if they are doing kind of public diplomacy outreach campaigns, they are not working. And I think that's not unique to Lebanon. I think in many parts of the region, representatives of the US struggle to get out and talk to people and to express the US perspective. So I think that probably contributes to this as well. Yeah, I think the United States has a bit of a soft power or influence problem at this stage. For a long time, the United States in a post-Cold War world, or even during the Cold War, has been very focused on hard power. And it sees regions where it doesn't have hard power as regions where it doesn't necessarily have influence or power. And I think that's a mistake. And in the past decade, we've seen a lot of public overtures saying that we're, we, being the United States, is going to pivot to China or pivot to Asia and and not be involved in the Middle East, while simultaneously the United States invests much more in the Middle East in terms of security and economic development than China and Russia. That might not be forever, but certainly you're sort of underselling yourself by not talking about those initiatives. Going back to what Will said about how there's just a lot of evidence that people can point to for the U.S. having hypocrisy, you both wrote about how Russia is employing the tactic that's used in Syria and Ukraine during this conflict now. So Russia has been pretty heavily involved in Syria. They've been involved elsewhere in Libya. Is Russia just better at keeping that out of the news in other Arab states? Do they just have more supporters that are willing to not talk about that? Or is it just that the United States is just more well known as an actor? I think for a long time, and I'm speaking for the Middle East here, the U.S. has been seen as kind of a puppet master in their their destinies. So it's hard to believe that the U.S. cannot sort of pull strings or move the pieces around or quite different to what Will was saying about them being out of touch, that they're kind of master of this domain. That said, I think because of that and because of the lack of sort of experience with China and Russia to date, the United States is much more exposed when it comes to not necessarily war crimes, but violations of human rights and things like that. And I think only time will tell in terms of how the population reacts to greater Russian and Chinese influence in the region. By then, it might be perhaps too late. But one thing that I think is really striking is the United States hit an MSF, a Doctors Without Borders supported hospital in Afghanistan. It was a really tragic mistake a few years ago. And this was in the headlines in the United States and globally for weeks, if not months. 
Russia has bombed, I can't tell you how many hospitals in Syria. And I think that that kind of alludes to the place where I tend to agree with Nadia that the United States, for all of its many faults, has worked towards trying to mitigate civilian casualties, at least, or having some kind of investigative apparatus. It's been very imperfect at times. And there's been a lot of New York Times investigations on this. And I did a lot of this work at Center for Civilians in Conflict. But if you look at just sort of the sheer magnitude of war crimes, I think Russia's ability to commit war crimes without us really talking about it is something that is is very concerning. And part of that is because there isn't a free media in Russia and we have a free media in, in the United States and we have think tanks and we have NGOs that are following exactly what the United States does overseas. And so I think as this progresses, as Russian and Chinese influence progresses in the Middle East and elsewhere, we will unfortunately start seeing some of those human rights violations and war crimes as a very stark reality in the way that we see them in Ukraine. I mean, honestly, this question of why do people not care more or focus more on Russia's war crimes is something of a mystery to me. But I think part of it might come back to the piece about hypocrisy that I mentioned before. Russia isn't saying that it is trying to spread values of democracy and whatnot. It is it has very clear aims, and I think it is ruthless in pursuing those aims. But perhaps there's a degree to which people sort of expect this from Russia. And it may try to muddy the waters, and it, it certainly tries to muddy the waters. But it's not, as Natasha said, it, it's not apologizing for these things. It's not owning up. And in the way that investigations here in the US can force the US government to apologize for some of the war crimes that it commits... And so I wonder if that might be part of it. There are so many examples of the US not acting in accordance with the rhetoric that it deploys. And so that is probably why it's easier to point the finger to those discrepancies. I do think, Natasha, your point is really interesting about this, this feeling that the US is kind of the mastermind of everything and is always sort of two steps ahead and is playing three-dimensional chess or whatnot. I've heard this several times and I think uh, there is a tendency maybe to ascribe bad policy or bad outcomes with some kind of master plan that like later on down the line is going to come to fruition and then the US will actually be ahead after all. And I think sometimes it's just... It's hard. And sometimes the government screws up and the government makes mistakes. Well, Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.